night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show, everyone. Great to see you here. Thank you. To, you know, I, I was thinking about this during the intro. Uh, I don't. I say thank you for joining me every night. When we start the program, I say that. But I do want to take just a second and really honestly, from the depths of my heart, thank everybody who makes the effort to be here with us as many nights as they possibly can. And I know we don't do a show uh, five nights a week, at least this show, five nights a week uh, at this point, um, just because of scheduling of other projects right now. But I really, really appreciate you joining me. Uh, It makes it worthwhile. I don't do this the show because I want to talk so much, but I, I do this because I feel like I'm in the company of friends and people who share the same curiosities that I share. So thank you to everybody for joining us. And, and if you're joining us on one of the recorded versions of the program after the fact, whether it's on YouTube or uh, you're listening to the podcast version, I, I really appreciate you doing that too, because I know that uh, 11 o'clock Eastern is a little bit late for some people. Uh, a lot of people have to get up really early, and uh, it's just too late to join the live program. So I do appreciate you listening in the, those forums as well. We have a really interesting show for you tonight. Anyone who has done any uh, exploration to UFO sightings and reports has come across the Betty and Barney Hill story. This is a fascinating story, and it still today holds up as one of the most uh, genuine and uh, substantiated cases in all of UFO contactee experience. And tonight we're going to have Kathleen Martin on the program. Kathleen was on the show before. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of her book. Uh, um, well, um, hmm, hmm. I don't remember. Oh, yeah, it was Extraterrestrial Contact, What to Do When You've Been Abducted. That was the book that had just been out when she was on the program uh, sometime, I think, last fall it was. Well, it's now uh, the 60th anniversary of the Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction experience. And um, Kathleen has a book that's been out. It's called Captured, the True Story of the World's First Documented Alien Abduction. And it's uh, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. And it's the 60th anniversary of that experience. And this book has been updated to reflect that. And she's going to be on tonight and to talk about this. And uh, it is, uh, as, as our chat room is, is pointing out, it's a very interesting case with a lot of uh, consequences because it really set the standard by which we measure all other cases of this type. There are only a few of these cases that fall into that category. I would say Travis Walton's case is one of those. I would say, and I'll ask uh, Kathleen what she thinks about that. Um, but there aren't many that reach that level. And uh, this one was the first and probably stay, still remains at the top of the list. So we'll look forward to doing that. Please subscribe to the show or the channels. Go to YouTube, search for JV Johnson. You can subscribe there, of course. Also, we're on Twitch. We appreciate our Twitch viewers. It's a different platform for us. Twitch is generally known as a gaming streaming platform. Uh, but they are also looking for additional content, so we've put the show there. And it's, a, it's another great way to, to uh, participate and watch and view and all those things. There's no archive of the programs there, so it's only a live platform. Uh, live platform only but you can subscribe there or you can just follow following is no charge if you subscribe there is a fee unless you subscribe using your amazon prime account in which case there is no fee so 
Uh, that's one way to do it and not have to pay anything extra. So a lot of great stuff on the program. Appreciate you joining us. We'll take a break. And when we come back, we will have our guest again tonight. We're talking with Kathleen Martin, and we're specifically talking about the uh, Betty and Barney Hill case, the abduction case that took place 60 years ago. It's beyond reality. We will be right back. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month less than a dollar goes a long way in helping us produce this program provide great interviews for you during the course of the week i thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Great to have you all along. We've got a terrific show for you tonight and a returning guest. Kathleen Martin is a leading ufologist who, since 1990, has been researching the nature of UFOs and the non-human entities associated with highly advanced aerial vehicles, and not through the work of others, but for through her own groundbreaking research, investigation, and experimentation. And we're looking forward to talking to her about all of her experience, plus the 60th anniversary edition of her book, which is called Captured, The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. Kathleen, welcome back to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you here again. Thank you. It's great to be back with you. I have to start out by asking something that's kind of, it's certainly related to what we're talking about, but it's kind of an adjunct conversation. There seems to be an awful lot of reports being made that are very, very significant, substantiated, and kind of uh, jaw-dropping in some cases. People uh, popping up with video all over the place of odd lights in the sky. This is becoming more and more common. Are you seeing the same thing? Yes, I am. And, you know, I think that it might have something to do with the fact that on December 16, 2017, the front page of the New York Times ran an article about the ATIP program, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, run out of the Pentagon. And then uh, in 2019, uh, the Department of Defense uh, admitted that three videos of uh, craft that maneuver in ways that are impossible for anyone on this earth to do so, uh, they admitted that it's theirs. They released that video. And uh, so they're taking this uh, more seriously than they ever have. Is that a forced position? In other words, is the public demanding it so loudly and also the activity is increasing, so therefore explanations are being demanded, that it's kind of forcing their hand on this? Or is this happening willingly? I really don't know the answer to that. I I know that uh, this started to move along when Tom DeLong uh, formed uh, 
the To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science. And uh, in that academy is Lou Elizondo, who was the uh, head of the ATIP program at the Pentagon, and also several other retired scientists and high-level uh, people in the U.S. government. Uh, they're people that you listen to. They're people who have the credentials and the knowledge and uh, are saying that uh, these crafts are beyond our second-generation uh, model. So as they start to come clean, and when I, by they I mean the U.S. military, the government, and they start this slow dis- disclosure, are you suggesting that the increase in activity we're seeing in our skies is a response to that by the alien craft themselves, or is it the people now feel more comfortable bringing this information forward when they have a sighting? Well, I think that it's that people feel more comfortable bringing the information forward for many, many years. Uh, there was a great deal of interest, uh, but then uh, the lid would slam shut. There was a federal program developed in 1953 by the CIA. It was uh, through a panel called the Robertson Panel to figure out how uh, they should handle the public's interest in UFOs. And the idea was that uh, they did not want... uh, the public to have a great interest in this topic, and they wanted scientists to uh, think of uh, explanations that uh, would sort of write off these flying saucers or these UFOs as being something terrestrial uh, or meteorological. Uh, So that happened for many, many years, and uh, something has happened, I think, within the past probably Six years, where very slowly uh, things are changing. For example, on all of the UFO shows on on television, uh, there was always a disinformant who was on the show who would refute anything that any of the experts stated uh, with just speculation and false information. Uh, the media stopped doing that, the television media, uh, at least six, seven years ago. So I think that might have been the beginning of uh, a release of information where uh, the television shows continued, and I think there are probably more now than there were then, but uh, the truth is being told, and there's scientific interest in this. Let me just ask you to put uh, the hat on of someone who might deny what we're seeing just for a second, because when you see the videos like the Tic Tac incident, you know, these, these military videos of craft that are clearly uh, running circles or flying circles around our best technology, our best aerial technology. How could anybody explain what they see in those types of videos as anything other than uh, some type of extraterrestrial or at least exotic, let me use the word exotic technology. Well, there are people who are somehow fearful, I suppose, of of this extraterrestrial technology, and uh, they would just like to uh, pull the the lid over their own head and and, uh, believe that it must be either a black budget program that we have that 
is somehow uh, out there coming up out of the ocean or come dropping down from 80,000 feet in, in a second, and uh, that's what they uh, want to explain it as. Or, or maybe it's China, or maybe it's Russia. They, they just simply do not want to accept the idea that uh, there could be intelligent uh, non-humans visiting us. Some would also suggest that possibly these are terrestrial craft that are designed using alien exotic technology and some types and there's somehow a coordination between some of the governments here on earth and these alien visitors any thoughts to the, on that well i've talked to scientists about that and what i learned was that uh, we can only back engineer uh, technology that is very close to our current technology so there are some characteristics of these craft that cause me to wonder if the ETs are actually assisting uh, Earth scientists in developing their highly advanced technology. Uh, I do know that uh, these non-human entities have great concern about warfare, about the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, they uh, are very concerned about human behavior. Uh, and why would they be giving this sophisticated, uh, highly advanced technology to humans who they are unhappy with uh, because of our war-like behavior and our possible use of nuclear weapons against one another that could uh, cause an environmental collapse? You have been studying this topic for some time. You are highly respected from because of the work that you do and have done. Um, but how did you get started? Where, where did the interest come from? It came way back in 1961. I was 13 years old. I had just arrived home from school, and my mother was on the telephone with her sister, Betty Hill. And Betty was telling my mother that she and Barney had uh, observed a uh, flying saucer the previous evening when they were returning home from a vacation. They were in upstate New Hampshire, and the craft came so close to their car and to Barney, who was standing in a field with binoculars looking at, up at it, that uh, they worried that they might have been contaminated. We had a neighbor who was a physicist, and Betty wanted my mother to call the physicist uh, to find out what they should do. Uh, when they had arrived home, they felt very dirty, uh, much more than the, the feeling that you would have after a day of travel in the car and, and sightseeing. And they had taken very long showers. But uh, Betty was looking for some more information and had this concern. I suppose when you, <laughs> when you have an experience like that, it, basically in your immediate family, you can't help but develop a curiosity. And I would also say that the odds are that you're going to make it a lifelong passion to get some answers. And it sounds to me like, um, you know, you were destined to be doing the work you're doing from that moment. I think that I probably was. You know, I, I was fascinated by this. 
In fact, I immediately uh, developed an interest in astronomy, and my father purchased a telescope for me. Uh, Walter Webb, who was the original investigator of uh, Betty and Barney's experience for the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, he was a, uh, an astronomer at the Hayden Planetarium in Boston. And so he helped my father select a telescope for me. And, you know, within a couple of days of the phone call that my mother had with, with Betty, my, my family and I uh, rode up to Betty's Barney's house. It was about 20 miles from my childhood home, where I was able to hear what happened to Betty from her, her own lips. Uh, my father sat quietly in another part of the living room with Barney, who was very uh, unusual that day. His behavior was, was quiet. Uh, he was contemplative. Uh, he was waiting for a phone call from Pease Air Force Base. But from Betty, we, she showed us the watch that she handed it to me, in fact, the watch that would no longer work, that was working when they arrived, uh, when they took that trip. They had uh, checked their watches and rewound them uh, at a little after 11 o'clock that night. And here, both watches were broken. She took us out to the car where she had found shiny spots that hadn't been there the day before. And those spots caused a compass needle to whirl, indicating there was a magnetic field around the trunk of that car. We've seen that in other cases of UFO abduction. It's amazing. It's amazing stuff. Um, let's back up just a little bit. Uh, okay. Most of us have heard, if not know the story of uh, Benny, Betty and Barney Hill and what they went through. But not all of us know who they were prior to that incident. Give us an idea of who they really were. I mean, it was your aunt and uncle. I, you know, they were real people that had this amazing experience that you know we're still talking about today. But, but who, were the, who were the real people behind all of this? Well, thank you for asking that. I love to talk about Betty and Barney. Um, Betty grew up in Kingston, New Hampshire on a farm. Uh, she went to a one-room schoolhouse, and she was so smart that she helped the teacher uh, teach the other children. Went on through high school and to the University of New Hampshire, where uh, she ended up graduating with her Bachelor of Science degree in social work. She was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. She worked in child welfare and adoption. And uh, Barney was uh, a, a black man. He grew up in Philadelphia and in Virginia. In Virginia, he would visit the family farm during the summer. Uh, his aunt and uncle had a farm there. And so Barney grew up in a system that uh, was very unfair, a system that considered uh, black individuals, people of color, to be less than human, in a sense, that they were not viewed as ha uh, being permitted to have equal rights to white people. And if you uh, had a relationship with a white woman, you could lose your life. 
So that's the kind of environment that Barney grew up in. He uh, was very intelligent. His IQ was 140. But, and he wanted to be an engineer. He wanted to go to college, but he was told uh, to forget about it because it was impossible for him to do. And he was so discouraged that he ended up joining the Army just before World War II. He served honorably, but he was uh, injured. He was in fair condition in Newport News, Virginia, in the hospital. Um, he was finally released. Uh, from the Army, he had uh, an excellent uh, character assessment, and he was hired by the U.S. Post Office. He married uh, his first wife. They had two sons and lived in Philadelphia. And the family had gone to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, well, actually Hampton, New Hampshire, on a vacation at the beach in the summer. And they had met Betty uh, there, and she told them that uh, she had an apartment house, and she kept an apartment uh, that she leased to on short-term basis, and that if they wanted to uh, come back, they could lease the apartment from her for a week or two, however long they wanted to stay at the beach. Well, Barney ended up uh, getting divorced from his wife, and uh, he was writing, began writing to Betty and said to her that uh, he wanted to rent that apartment. He was going to go up uh, for another vacation, and so she rented it to him, and uh, that sort of began the relationship, I believe. She told me that they never intended to be any more than friends. They knew the consequences of having an interracial marriage back in 1960, but they were very much in love. And knowing uh, what they could possibly face, uh, they married anyway. And Barney uh, lived in Philadelphia for months after they were married uh, until he could uh, get a transfer to a post office uh, near Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The first one happened to be in the South Boston Postal Annex, so he had quite a drive to that. But uh, they were also, aside from their professional positions, very, very interested and advocates of civil rights, of human rights. They were politically active in the state of New Hampshire in voters' rights, in a literacy program. Uh, so before this incident, that, those are things that they were, were doing. They uh, were just very nice, nice people. They were concerned about their community. Uh, gregarious, uh, had a, a large group of friends, uh, very easy to get along with. Uh, Barney would, uh, on a trip, stop and ask someone for directions or some simple question just to strike up a conversation with that person. I, I observed him doing that. So, you know, people who enjoyed speaking with others. And they were such a great family. Uh, they were great family members, too.
to the children in the family, and I was one of them, where they were always uh, interested in our schoolwork, in what we were doing. They encouraged us to do well. Uh, they took us places. They would take us to museums with my parents, of course, and we would go out to dinner, and we would learn good table manners. You know, they were always uh, sort of spurring us on to do our very best. It's hard to um, to say this without sounding odd about it. It's just the, 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 the current climate in the country makes it a little bit odd to talk about these things. But, you know, that debate aside, when it comes to racial issues, if you look back in 1960, you know, the early 60s, late 50s, as you pointed out, and I don't think we fully appreciate how very, very different society was at the time and the things that were accepted, the things that were considered uh, normal or, or abnormal or acceptable or unacceptable. And Betty and Barney, clearly very brave people, um, and clearly recognized that their feelings for each other were far more important than anybody's opinion of them. Um, so they they knew what they had to face, and clearly they did it with a great deal of uh, dignity and, um, I guess, uh, moral high ground, if you will. Uh, you must have seen some of that in action, what they, what they had to deal with on a daily basis, even if it was just glances from people. Well, let me tell you uh, a story about uh, when we went to Lyndon Johnson's inauguration. We were invited. Barney was a delegate, and they had campaigned for Lyndon Johnson. And as a high school student at that point, I uh, also campaigned as much as uh, a girl could in high school <laughs> and uh, encouraged by Betty and Barney. And uh, the big surprise came when I received an invitation from Lyndon Johnson to attend the inauguration. It was uh, superb. It was one of the best moments of my entire life. We went to the inauguration. It was fantastic, the balls, the dinners. And then we went to the Arlington National Cemetery to visit the grave of John Kennedy. And we were standing there uh, talking. And then it was time to get into the car to go to another event. And Barney said to Betty, do you realize that we're breaking the law in the state of Virginia? We could be arrested for being married. Wow. And yes, it, uh, it was just so shocking to me uh, as a teenage girl. And so uh, they thought, well, what should we do about that? Should uh, Betty and I sit in the back of the car and have Barney pretend to be the chauffeur? Oh, jeez. No, we didn't. What we did is the three of us sat in the front seat together, Betty squeezed up next to Barney with me on the passenger side. Wow. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable to think of a time where that was actually happening, and it happened for a very, very long time in this country. Um, let's uh, let's fast forward a little bit. Let's talk about the experience, because I know we're going to find ourselves short on time if we're not careful. Let's talk about what happened to them, because this still remains kind of the, the measure by which all abduction cases are measured against. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and... Uh... Do you want me to give a, like a brief summary of 
No, let's, I mean, let's get into some detail. Um, okay. You know, most people know, particularly people that would listen to this program, you know, what, what, what happened, but let's, let's okay. really kind of spell it out. Okay, well, they, uh, they were abducted by non-humans. Uh, they were terrified when it happened, but they were treated well. Uh, these non-humans uh, told them that they uh, should not be afraid. They would not be harmed. Uh, they only needed to do a few simple tests, and then they would be taken back to their vehicle, and they would be on their way. Uh, there was a great deal of evidence. Uh, I guess these non-humans made some mistakes and uh, didn't realize that uh, Betty had uh, an extraordinarily good memory and was going to be able to draw that star map that she drew as a direct suggestion of Dr. Benjamin Simon, who was the psychiatrist uh, who hypnotized the two of them separately and reinstated amnesia at the end of each session. Uh, He did that for two reasons. One, so that they could not uh, contaminate one another's information. He wanted to be able to compare that. And also, uh, because at times, the trauma, the fear that they experienced was so great, he did not want to increase their level of anxiety. Uh, So he withheld all of that information from them until the end where he began the therapy of having them listen together to their statements. And, you know, there have been uh, many, many individuals who have uh, made false statements about what happened to the Hills. There there was uh, a concerted effort to uh, invent hypothetical situations and insert them in as if maybe they happened when, in fact, we knew what happened to Betty and Barney. We knew that this craft hovered 100 feet above Barney as he stood in the field. We knew from the original reports that he observed figures who were dressed in shiny black uniforms and that he became so frightened when something started to drop down out of the bottom of that craft that he, uh, in hysterics, ran back to the car, screaming to Betty that they had to get out of there. Uh, We knew that the Air Force uh, had a craft on radar at 2.14 a.m. that morning, about the time that Betty and Barney were released. Uh, There is so much information. Uh, We know that now that there was a second report. It's all in my book, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience uh, with the late Stanton T. Friedman, nuclear physicist. And uh, so there was a great deal of evidence, and it was all documented. So you could not if you knew anything about this, refute the facts of the case. They were there in black and white. And uh, still, people like Philip Class did uh, build an entirely new story around the hills, who they were, and what they saw, and how 
they came to know this experience. They knew from day one what had happened. Not that they were captured, but they knew from day one uh, that something had happened to them. They knew they had arrived home later than anticipated. My, it was my father who actually suggested to Barney two days later that he should find a hypnotist who could help him with this. And so Betty and Barney were starting to look. It was not uh, Holman and Jackson who visited the hills in December of that year. They were from NICAP. Uh, they worked for IBM. One was an engineer. Uh, they, I, you would say both were engineers, but one was a technical writer. The other uh, worked at engineering. And so, uh, you know, the truth is there. And yeah. the truth is in captured. Uh, the evidence is in captured. The scientific evaluation of that evidence and the 60th anniversary edition that I have updated uh, has all of the evidence that has undergone scientific analysis uh, since 2007 when the first book was uh, released. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, hypnotism or the, the, the hypnotherapy sessions. Uh, what did Betty and Barney remember without those, without the sessions? And what was uh, Dr. Simon able to pull from them um, during those sessions that he later revealed to them? Betty and Barney remembered every part of the trip, including the UFO hovering over the vehicle uh, Barney seeing the, the non-humans and uh, running back to the car. Then he uh, said to Betty, roll down the window and look up. I, I think they're above us. As he was entering the car, he saw that the, it, the craft was heading in his direction. She rolled down the window. She looked up. She didn't see the lights. She thought she was supposed to see the lights on the craft, but all she saw was blackness rolled the window back up and said to Barney, I think they're gone. But within a few seconds, she and Barney heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds on the trunk of the vehicle. It caused the vehicle to vibrate and for a tingling sensation to pass through their bodies. Uh, they then, as if only a moment had passed, found themselves 35 miles down the highway. They had vague memories of encountering a roadblock, of being on a dirt road. In fact, uh, that fall, immediately after that happened, they made many trips to the White Mountains to try to find that dirt road, to try to find the spot where that roadblock was. They remembered a fiery orb that was sitting on the ground, and they wondered what that was. They thought maybe it was the moon, but then Walter Webb told them it wasn't the moon. The moon had already set. So they had all of those uh, memories, but sandwiched in between those memories uh, was amnesia. The things that happened to them, the things that happened to Barney's shoes, could not be recovered until he underwent hypnosis with Dr. Simon and remembered being uh, that the the roadblock was in front of him. He, uh, Betty said to him, what's this ahead? 
And Barney turned to her and he said, I think it's them. I think it's the ones I saw when I was standing in the field. Betty saw them then as they were approaching the car and thought that she would uh, open the door and run into the woods to hide. Uh, She was terrified. She had never been so terrified in her life. And she cried this out in Dr. Simon's office under hypnosis. Barney had now stopped uh, being hysterical, stopped being terrified. He reasoned that if he put his hand on the gun that was on the seat of the car, that uh, they might harm him. So he opened the door, he put his foot on the ground, and they assisted him uh, down a path through the woods. He said that he felt like he was floating. He could, could not feel hands supporting him, but he knew he was being supported somehow, and only the toes of his shoes were bumping along the rocks. And that is how his shoes were so deeply scraped that he had to buy new shoes. Uh, they took Betty down the path to the craft, and when she saw that uh, they were going to take her onto this thing, she fought for her life. Uh, she struggled. She kicked the one beside her, and this is how her dress was torn from waist to hemline, and the hem was torn down on one side. They were taken onto this craft into separate examining rooms. Uh, these non-human entities were very interested in Betty's and Barney's skeletal system, in their muscular system, uh, in their joints. They uh, they moved their fingers, their hands, uh, they their arms, their knees, their feet. They examined their toes. They seemed fascinated by these human bodies. Betty thought and. Uh, when they had finished with uh, taking samples from Betty's and Barney's uh, bodies, or actually Betty was first, then the examiner went to the room with Barney. But when uh, the examiner finished with Betty, after he had plunged a needle into her navel, uh, he had uh, tried to remove her dress, and he tore the zipper back there. There's a two-inch tear in the... Uh, the fabric, the stitching, and a, and a one-inch tear in the thick zipper fabric. Uh, the dress was, uh, had to be repaired, obviously. But then she put it in her closet and forgot about it uh, for a while before she took it out again and found pink powdery substance on the dress. But uh, so she was uh, so distressed over having this needle inserted into her navel that Dr. Simon had to end the session early. And I I want you to uh, remember that amniocentesis was not uh, used in a medical setting for another 10 years. It wasn't possible that Betty could have known about this procedure. And it was under development. And uh, so that is when... uh, She uh, put her dress back on. She had uh, begun to trust the entity who remained in the room with her that she always called the leader. Today we know it's the escort. uh, It is the individual who sort of bonds with the human, who uh, visits 
with them time and time again so that when people are taken to craft, uh, they feel comfortable and at ease. And so Betty said to him, I know you're not from around here. Where are you from? And uh, he uh, produced a three-dimensional map, a star map. There were two stars in the foreground that were about the size of nickels or quarters. And then there were uh, 12 other stars that were connected by lines. The two stars in the foreground had five lines connecting them. And then there were uh, four more stars that had uh, two or three lines connecting. And then there were several other stars that uh, were, had dotted lines. And the dotted lines were expeditions that he was made to understand uh, through telepathic conversation, uh, at least he was telepathic, that uh, the... Uh, the stars connected by lines were trade routes. There were places that they went to more frequently. So uh, Dr. Simon uh, said to, uh, uh, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Betty said uh, to the leader, well, I don't know much about the universe. Where are you located? And he said, can you show me where you are on this map? And she said, no, I can't. And he said to her, well, if you don't know where you are, how can I tell you where I am? I think that he could have at least pointed to <laughs> those uh, larger uh, stars in the foreground, but uh, maybe he just assumed that she <laughs> knew that he had to be from one of those. I don't know. But uh, so Barney was uh, being examined at that time. Uh, they came running into the room holding Barney's dentures, and tried to tug at Betty's teeth to see if they could be removed. They couldn't. They seemed very perplexed by that. Betty had to make them understand that uh, humans uh, might lose their teeth through accident or by not taking care of them, or um, as they age, they might also uh, have to have their teeth pulled. So they did essentially the same exam on Barney that they did on Betty, and, uh, but they didn't insert the needle in his navel. They took a sperm sample instead. They placed a cup-like device over his groin. Um, let me just interrupt here for just a second, because I have a couple questions on, uh, related to a couple things you just said. Uh, when it comes to Betty saying that she started to gain a trust for the the being that was with her. Was that trust naturally occurring? Did she just naturally start to trust this this individual, or was it something telepathically induced? Do we know? Yes, I, I do know. She told me that uh, when the examiner plunged the needle into her navel and she was writhing and in pain, the leader... Uh, did something around her head, and it caused all of the pain to go away. And she was grateful to him. And so she knew that she could trust him. In fact, when she was released from the craft, Barney went first because she wanted to take evidence. She had picked up uh, what was like a tablet with some symbols on it, and she wanted to take that with her uh, as proof that 
they, this had indeed occurred. And the leader had told her she could. But when she and Barney were gathered together to, to leave, uh, the little short ones, who were about three and a half to four feet tall, that we know today as the, the escorts and the assistants, uh, objected. They would not let Betty take that book off the craft. And so uh, she, was, she remained behind arguing. She was as angry as could be because she had been told she could have it. So Barney was escorted down to the car. Finally, Betty realized they wouldn't give it to her, and the leader escorted her to the car. And on the way, um, she said, but I, this is my proof uh, th that this happened to me. I'm going to remember this. And the leader said, well, we've decided that you shouldn't remember this. Uh, and uh, if you do, then you and Barney will only be confused by all of this, and, uh, and the, so you shouldn't. And, and Betty said, well, I know of people that you could come back and meet with who are scientists, who are, can discuss information with you. And she knew people in the military, too. And uh, so he said, well, maybe I can come back, but it is not my decision to make but maybe I can come back. And Betty said to him, well, how would you find me? Out of all of the people on this planet, how would you find me? And he said to her, we can always find those that we want to find, which leads me to believe that she probably had an implant. Yeah, yeah, that, I was going to ask that next, if, uh, if there was some kind of implant or uh, something physical that was uh, relayed in order for that to happen. Um, but I, I also want to ask this before I forget it. Uh, are there any artifacts that remain from that encounter, specifically what I'm thinking of here? And it would be probably quite unusual for this stuff to be saved, given the time. But in retrospect, it would have been really excellent if it was saved. But like the, the damaged clothing, any of that, was that any of that saved? Oh, yes. Uh, after Betty's death, I'm, I'm the executor and trustee of the estate. Okay. After Betty's death, I set up an archival collection at the University of New Hampshire. She and I both graduated from UNH, and it is in the Milne Special Collections uh, Archival Library uh, at the University of New Hampshire. It's a very popular uh, exhibit. Uh, Betty's dress is there. And uh, I uh, take uh, requests from scientists who might want to uh, do testing on that dress as our technology develops. And uh, I can cut samples from the dress for them when I go to New Hampshire. And uh, also a bust of the non-human uh, is up there as well. The, Betty used to call him Junior. Uh, she had sculpted him with Marjorie Fish, and who was the star map researcher. And uh, so there are photographs. Uh, there are all sorts of things uh, up there that belong, belong to Betty and Barney, along with the entire record uh, of all of the documented evidence, the records and uh, the uh, transcripts of the hypnosis, all of that's at the university. 
Kathleen, is, was, you mentioned tests being done on the clothing, particularly the dress. Was anything anomalous ever found? Yes. Yes. Uh, it, there, it is anomalous that uh, the pink powder on the dress uh, was analyzed first at the University of Cincinnati Chemistry Department. They tried to produce that kind of pink powdery effect uh, through a number of different processes. They couldn't. Uh, they did a spectroscopic analysis on the dress and said that the, uh, the white, I, I guess, on the dress uh, was unusual in relationship to the other, the blue fabric of that dress. Uh, somehow they said white instead of pink. I don't know why. Um, but uh, also, Phyllis Budinger uh, is an analytical chemist. She has her master's degree in chemistry. She worked for BP, uh, Amico, and Standard Oil throughout her professional career. She now has her own laboratory uh, in Ohio, and she did an extensive analysis on Betty's dress. And uh, not only of the uh, chemicals on the dress, but also uh, the tearing. And she said that Betty's description of what happened is consistent with the tears on the dress. And her hypothesis, along with many other scientists, is that either fungus or yeast deposited from these non-human entities' hands onto that dress, and uh, that perhaps they had used some kind of sanitizing substance that killed the bacteria, sterilized the dress and killed the bacteria, which would have then caused uh, uh, created an environment where the, uh, a yeast or a fungus could grow readily, uh, feeding off the, the, the dress fabric and uh, then dying and producing that pink powdery substance. So uh, they, there was another plant uh, growth uh, experiment done, and they discovered that water that contained the pink powdery part of the dress put on uh, seedlings caused those seedlings to grow at an incredibly high rate compared to the seedlings that were watered with uh, the blue part of the dress and just plain water. So uh, that was highly unusual as well. More tests have been done. It's all in the updated 60th anniversary edition of Cop Captured, and uh, I cannot talk to you about <laughs> what the new scientific evidence, the evaluation of the evidence is, but it's very, very interesting. By the way, we are talking with Kathleen Martin, author of the book that she just referenced here. And again, this is, uh, it's captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience, 60th anniversary edition. Kathleen, 60 years. This, the neat thing about this particular story is it's always contemporary. It's always current. It's always worth talking about, but it's hard to believe it's been 60 years since this occurred. Oh, it's hard for me to believe that too. I still feel young. (laughs) Tell me what happened uh, when Betty called your mom. You said she called, and you were in the room kind of hearing, uh, over, overhearing the conversation, and Betty was telling your mom what had happened. Did that happen the very next day? Um, it happened 
Well, actually, the abduction occurred on in the early morning hours of September 20th, okay. 1961. Betty and Barney completed their drive home to the seacoast to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, they uh, took long showers, had a, some food, drew what they remembered observing that craft, and then went to bed. And when Betty woke up that afternoon, uh, she called my mother. And uh, this is the conversation I overheard as uh, I had arrived home from school. And uh, just concern over what had happened. And uh, after Betty hung up, uh, Buzz Sawyer, who had been the chief of police in the neighboring town, was my father's best friend. He stopped by the house every afternoon for coffee on his way home from work. And he told my mother that Pease Air Force Base had sent out a request to the police station uh, to, uh, for people who had UFO sightings to report them to Pease. And so uh, my mother called Betty and told her she should do that. And so Betty and Barney then filed a report with Pease Air Force Base. Uh, so, you know, all of this kind of uh, evolved Right. Really rapidly uh, until we got to the part where that they couldn't remember. My mother too told me that afternoon that she had had a UFO sighting. Now I never knew this. Uh, she went grocery shopping every Friday night, and on one, I guess it was back in 1957 or 58, she and another sister. Uh, were on their weekly grocery shopping trip on a Friday night, and they saw a huge mothership uh, hovering over a field with smaller craft flying around it. They ran to the the house that uh, knocked on the door of some of their friends. The friends went out and saw this craft as well. I had no idea in 1961 that my mother had wow. ever had that sighting. She never mentioned it in front of me. What was the immediate reaction, if, particularly if your mother had had an experience of her own, and she's hearing this from, from her sister? Um, did First of all, did Betty have fear in her voice when she was telling the story at that point? And was, did your mother then maybe say, uh, Kathleen, I want you to stay close to home. There's weird things happening. Any of that go on? <laughs> well, yes, there was some fear in Betty's voice. It was fear that they had been contaminated because the craft was so close to their vehicle. And, uh, you know, so that was the, the big worry that they might have been exposed to radiation. Right. They might develop radiation sickness, that sort of thing. Um, so uh, I developed a fear eventually. Uh, I didn't want to go out after dark. And I'll tell you uh, today, if I'm driving through Franconia Notch in New Hampshire and I'm alone in the car at night, I do feel a little fearful. Sure. Ew. Yeah, I mean that's that's obviously quite natural. As this as as the story was told and as the uh, hypnosis drew out some more of these these memories and the and the gaps started to get filled in, what was happening around them? What, were, were the press interested in the story at the time? Uh, were there any national visitors? You said the military base obviously had an interest to a degree, but how big did the story become at the time? 
Well, uh, Betty and Barney never wanted their story to be made public. It was supposed to be confidential, but uh, a friend of Betty's uh, talked to a newspaper reporter who lived in the town that she lived in, and uh, that newspaper reporter got in touch with Betty and Barney and said that he... uh, that this woman, Laurie, had been had told him about their experience and how fascinating he thought it was, and if they would speak to him, that uh, he would not write about it. He would not uh, attempt to uh, make money off this in any way. And Betty and Barney said, no, we won't talk to you. Uh, you know, we have jobs, too, that we have to think about. We have good reputations. We don't want to be thought of as a couple of kooks. So uh, don't write about us, because they suspected that that's what he wanted to do. Sure. And uh, so in October of 1965, um, he did write their story in the Boston Traveler. Uh, They did not know it was coming. They were blindsided by it. They were extraordinarily distressed. Uh, There were reporters showing up at their uh, jobs. The phone was ringing off the hook, and they just didn't know what to do. They they went to Piers Air Force Base uh, to stay with one of the military officers one night to get away from the media. And then the next night, they drove down to my grandparents' house, and we met as a family to uh, decide what we needed to do next. We always made family decisions. This involved all of us. And so what we decided to do is, since uh, the story had already been told for five nights in the Boston Traveler, that Betty and Barney would speak about this, about what happened, but they would not speak about the abduction itself. So uh, shortly thereafter, it was uh, early, de- early November uh, of that year, uh, they spoke at a Unitarian church in Dover, New Hampshire. They were introduced by the public information officer from Pease Air Force Base. They told their story of their sighting. Uh, the public information officer spoke a little bit about it, and there were other military officers there. There was a huge crowd. The entire church was filled. The basement of the church was filled, and they set up uh, loudspeakers uh, for the people who had to stand outside the church to listen uh, in the freezing rain. So uh, there was enormous public interest about this. John G. Fuller was there. He was a mainstream uh, writer. Uh, He was a journalist. He he wrote for the Saturday Review sometimes. And uh, he was in town uh, doing research for a book he was writing called The Incident at Exeter. And he was there. He had met Betty once at at the police station because she would... uh, go to the police station to check up on the children that who she was supervising as a social worker. And um, then he went to their lecture and approached them after and asked them 
if he could write their story. And they said, well, we'll think about it. Uh, and he said, I'll send you a proposal. And there was much discussion. Uh, they, in order for him to tell that story, they wanted Dr. Simon to have a part in that book, too, and for themselves to have a part in that book. And so uh, finally, in the fall of 1966, The Interrupted Journey was released. Uh, and uh, it became a New York Times bestseller. It was published in several different languages, carried around the world. It was an enormous story, but it didn't have uh, all of the uh, evidence. It, the story ended in 1965, and so uh, Captured is different from that book, because we have uh, Betty's and Barney's life, who they were as people, uh, and uh, what happened to them, a comparative analysis of uh, what they remembered through hypnosis, I have all the tape, and uh, I transcribed all of them. Oh, wow. And uh, also, the, I couldn't put all of them in the book because they were in the interrupted journey, and there could be a copyright problem there, but I, I used them for a comparative analysis to find out if Betty and Barney really had this experience and relived it under hypnosis, or if they were only living a series of dreams that Betty had, right. be beginning uh, about 10 nights after they had this experience. And it's all in the book. If, if I followed the timeline, timeline correctly, um, from the point where the incident occurred to the point where it actually kind of picked up steam as a public story was four years? Yes, it wow. was. And, and was there reason to keep it somewhat private, um, is they didn't want the attention. They didn't want the scrutiny. That's correct. You know, they, they had very good reputations in the community. Uh, Barney had received a war, an award through the Office of Economic Opportunity from Sergeant Shriver for set, helping to set up the Rockingham County Community Action Program and uh, being uh, the chairman of the first board of directors. Uh, Betty worked with him on that. He had been appointed to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. Uh, he was the representative, a representative from the state of New Hampshire. They had a lot to lose by having this story go public. And uh, they were able to keep their jobs. Uh, Barney's uh, tenure uh, on the civil rights, U.S. Civil Rights Commission ended after a year. Uh, and so it, had, it did have a negative impact on them. And for the rest of Betty's life, uh, she had to endure this, these false tales, being told about her, being told about Barney, uh, people with uh, very prolific imagination. Sure. Uh, and, and it was really a shame to see that, to see her uh, being portrayed as some kind of a when she was down to earth and intelligent and had many interests. And Barney, poor Barney died at age 46. Mm. He had a massive cerebral hemorrhage. Jeez. And that, 
and that's you know that's the that's the tragedy of this story plus you know anyone who dares come forward with a story so um i don't know what the word is but certainly um eye opening um people you know will 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 find reasons to hate you to scorn you to make you uh, paint you to be crazy i mean I, I don't understand why the rush to do that to people regardless of what the story is or whether you believe it or not you know you everyone's welcome to their opinion of course yes but the, the 1953 robertson panel um, that was run by the cia funded by the cia had uh, developed a policy and the policy was to to do this to yeah. criticize people who uh, had these experiences and were credible or had uh, very credible experiences, UFO sightings or abductions. And uh, so that is what happened, and it happened for many, many years. I'm going to have to let you go shortly here. Um, but did they ever have a revisit uh, after this incident in 1961? Did Anything else happen in, in, during the course of their lives that they may have said, ah, that, that's connected to that? Well, uh, yes, they had close encounters. And uh, through people I have spoken with and uh, documents that Betty has, has written, uh, it appears that she was uh, taken with uh, two separate times with other people in the car. Oh. Because they they wrote that uh, the they saw the UFO. The UFO was beside the the vehicle, shining a light into the vehicle. And the next thing they knew, they were on another section of the highway. First, they felt like they were going up a hill, and then before they knew it, they were someplace else. So yes, I do suspect. Um, I feel certain knowing sure. as much as I do now after all of these years of research and investigation that uh, Betty was taken. Kathleen, do you feel blessed to have been part of this family and being able to share this experience, particularly with being able to tell the story uh, for years after um, Betty and Barney are no longer with us and be able to carry this, this forward? I do. I feel blessed to have had such a close relationship with Betty, that uh, she gave me all of her uh, records, the hypnosis tapes, and and we went along that route time and time again. Uh, that I knew almost everything there is to know about what happened to them, and uh, to be able to uh, do this fascinating scientific research uh, to uh, determine exactly what is happening. What kind of technology they have? Are they interdimensional? Um, you know, so many questions that I've worked on for several years now. Your website is your name, Kathleen-Martin.com. There's a lot of great information there about your work. Where can people find your book, or your books for that matter? The one we've been talking about primarily here is Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, but you've got several books. Where can people find them? Well, you can purchase autographed copies of my five books and one of Stanton Friedman's books uh, from my website at kathleen-marden.com 
or uh, the book is available at any online bookstore. Uh, Amazon has it available now. Uh, Barnes and Noble, many of the others. I've even been, I've even read online that it's going to be sold at Amazon and Walmart. So I have to look further into that. But uh, any good bookstore will will have that book. Or you can order it if they don't. And I, I know I shouldn't ask another question after I've asked you where they can get the book, but but a really good question just popped up in my chat room, and I meant to ask this earlier. But have you, in retrospect, had been able to come to um, any conclusions as to why Betty and Barney were targeted or selected, I guess is a better word? I suspect that Betty is a lifelong experiencer. Um, I think that Barney just happened to be with her that night and was taken, but the the primary interest was probably in Betty. Uh, She's the one who had the conversation with uh, her escort. And uh, I know that a craft landed on my grandparents' farm. It was observed by two uh, people. This was in 1965. And... I think, no, 66. I think it was in 1966. Uh, There were crafts seen down behind my grandparents' home. Uh, There have just been too many crafts seen for it to be a coincidence. So, and, and I have some evidence that my mother was also taken when I was a teenager. Wow. Well, thank you for the work you're doing, and thank you very much for sharing such intimate and personal details with us about your relationship with Betty and Barney and their experience. It's really fascinating. It's it's fabulous that you're actually uh, continuing this work, um, continuing to research it and and publish it in books like um, Captured uh, for the rest of us to read and understand. That's 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 terrific work of you, Kathleen, and thank you so much for doing it, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much, and it was a pleasure to be with you again. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.